Welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. And with me today, I have got James Elman, and we're going to be talking about his book, MacArthur Reconsidered. And I guess the first question, James, is what is the point that we're reconsidering MacArthur from? Well, General George MacArthur is clearly a controversial general in American military history. However, in general, at the end of the day, most observers have weighed his faults and his strengths and concluded that he was a great general and a great man in American history, a fabulous leader, a a towering giant in the 20th century. And as I spent more and more time researching his actual time as a wartime general in World War II and in Korea, the more I came to the conclusion that, in fact, he was a mediocre general at best, possibly one of the most dangerous in American history for a democracy. And we know he is famous for some of his non-wartime operations, being the head of the Army as the Chief of Staff in Washington in the 1930s, his heroism in World War I when he was a young officer and won a bevy of awards and medals and was promoted rapidly, or as the peacetime commander of the occupation force in Japan. He was certainly famous for those roles, but he's primarily famous for being a general of large bodies of men in World War II and in Korea. And I really believe that if one takes a look at the actual record of what he actually did rather than what he said he did, he was much less of a great general than many now hold him in in the American public. Yeah, that's interesting because Having read a lot of naval history, I think he comes across negatively, especially in many naval histories. Uh, you've got Craig L. Simons. He calls him, quote, a lightning rod for both admirers and critics who had, in addition to obvious intellectual gifts, MacArthur's personal demeanor included an all-too-evident self-regard that put off many of his contemporaries. He discounted, even disparaged the opinions of others and saw criticism less as disagreement than treason. Uh Admiral Halsey called him a self-aggrandizing son of a bitch. And then we have another great of naval history, Ian Toll, who called him a messianic, fame-seeking General MacArthur and had a generally dim view of his performance in World War II throughout the Pacific. But like you say, when I talk to the general average person interested and even who knows a decent deal about military history in World War II, they really do think that he is one of the greats up there with Eisenhower, up there with Halsey and Nimitz, up there with any of the truly great field commanders and theater commanders of the Second World War. Why is that, though? Well, I think two reasons come through. One is politics, and the other is PR, or public relations. I certainly would agree that elevated inter-service rivalry to a high art. He often criticized the Navy. He called them cowards. He called them defeatists. He made success in the Pacific War and World War II that much harder because of it. And, of course, because of that, many in the Navy and the Marines still uh, disparage him today. But I don't know if necessarily that made him a great or a poor wartime general, if he didn't get along well. He also often refused to carry out orders and went over his superiors' heads, even over the, the president's head, and tried to make global policy, not just with one or two, but actually with three different presidents, Hoover, FDR, and Truman. But, but even that really were not what I would say would be his faults. I would say his faults was that he presided over two of the greatest defeats the U.S. has ever suffered. He failed to focus on training his men to be ready to fight in the days leading up to war breaking out on two different occasions. 
He underestimated the potential of his foes and assumed that they would do what he wanted them to do rather than what they could do, which is a significant failing in a wartime general. He neglected logistics and making sure that his men had proper supplies, ammunition, fuel, clothing, medicine, and that helped definitely lead to his defeats. And I would say that those are really where we should focus our criticisms of him versus what he talks about in his memoirs and his public relations pieces as he put out many daily press releases throughout World War II, where he called himself the greatest leader of the war, said that he engaged in some of the most important decisive actions of the war, which of course seems somewhat absurd in that he was to a certain extent shunted off to the least important theater of World War II. So before we get to World War II, can you give the, you mentioned heroism in World War I, which is a big part of building his legend in addition to being the son of another four-star army general and the son of a force of nature mother. Leading up to World War II, give the very brief MacArthur biography, those people who don't know. Sure. Well, you know, he to give a, a short sketch about the person, he was a very interesting person. He was a, a great romantic figure with uh, one foot in the 19th century, one foot in the 20th century. You know, he was, he's born in the age of, of Calvary, and he exited in the age of atomic bombs. So really spanned a great deal of time. And he held himself up as one of those great romantic figures. But I think when we want to really take a look at what he accomplished, as he moved through his career, he increasingly failed upwards during that pathway. So he, as you mentioned, he was the son of a famous army general himself, Arthur MacArthur Jr., who had won the Medal of Honor in the Civil War, commanded the U.S. forces in suppressing the Philippine insurrection in 1899 to 1902, and was the, the first military governor in the Philippines. Douglas MacArthur was expected to go into the family business, which he did. He went to West Point. He received some of the highest marks ever received there. Some of that was because his mother's mentioned uh, Pinky MacArthur actually uh, rented an, an apartment across the street from his dormitory so she could make sure that he was up late, she could see his light on, and that he was studying late into the evening. When he got out of West Point, he spent many of his early years in the Army as an aide to his father, traveled around not just the Philippines, but also the rest of the Pacific Asian Rim, including two visits to Japan. He claimed he was the, a knower of the Oriental mind, as he called it. And one of his father's other aides said that General Arthur MacArthur was the most egotistical man he had ever met until I met his son. That gives you a bit of an idea of the sort of guy MacArthur was. He went back to Washington later. He was in charge of public relations for the army, and he started to understand the power of public relations in the era of the new technology of of radio. And of course, his fascism was growing. You think back to that era, it was probably the great era of propaganda in, in world history. In any event, World War I, breaks out, and that was really his moment. He joined the the Rainbow Division. He was exceedingly courageous in the line of fire. He told everybody who would listen that he was a man of destiny. No bullet was made yet with his name on it. He could not be killed. And in fact, bullets did fly right through his hat and through his clothing on multiple occasions. 
and never more than really scratched him. He was gassed a couple times, but not terribly badly. He never had to leave the his division's aid station for very long. And he was promoted partially due to his mother's letter-writing campaign and in the background in Washington. He was promoted to become the youngest general in the U.S. Army at the time. And he came to command a, a full division, but only two days before the armistice that ended the war. So being in charge of large bodies of men in wartime, that would have to wait for the next world war to take place. The interwar period, he continued his meteoric career. He was the commandant of West Point. He led the U.S. Olympic Committee for a while. He was the military governor back in the Philippines, to which he continued to have a strong affinity. And he was promoted to be the youngest uh, major general in the U.S. Army. And then at the age of 50, he got the job his father had never received, chief of staff, highest post in the army at the time, and um, returned to Washington under President Hoover to run the army in, in Washington, first under Hoover and then under FDR. And so at that point, he's 50 years old, which is when most people are making general, and he's already maxed out what he could do in the army, so to speak. And there hasn't been another war to his great chagrin. And so he's basically looking for the next career move, and then he finds in the Philippines, right? That's correct. He, he certainly, at the end of his time with FDR, he did not get along very well with FDR. He was a dyed-in-the-wool conservative Republican. He was beginning to refer to himself in the third person all the time then. MacArthur will do this. MacArthur believes in that. Always a, a dangerous precedent when you, if you hear that from a, a military leader. And engaged in some outright yelling and swearing matches with the president, which is not what you tend to hear about the chief of staff of the army doing with the president in a democracy. But at the end of his term as chief of staff, he was a relatively young and vigorous guy, and he wanted to do more. He didn't want to retire like most chief of staffs did then and, and are expected to now. General Mealy just stepped down as a chairman after being a chief of staff, and you know you ride off into the sunset. You fade away, as MacArthur might have, might have said. But MacArthur wasn't ready to. And FDR wanted him as far away from the U.S. voting public as possible because he was already being discussed as a possible... Republican candidate for president at some point. So a great compromise was found, which was the Philippine Commonwealth had just been created, which gave the colony, the US colony, quasi-independence for 10 years. And in 1946, it was to be given full independence and an army needed to be raised for it. The Philippine army, which was established in December of 1935. And MacArthur was promoted and given the role of field marshal of the Philippine Army. Now, we, we don't have field marshals in the United States, but he really liked the sound of that. MacArthur uh, designed his own uniform, and he sailed out from Washington to the Philippines to take over and raise and train this army, which eventually numbered more than 120,000 men. So his background in Washington and also his belief about how the Philippines should be defended, we can talk about it in a moment, is one of the reasons why it's important to understand his background and his time in Washington to understand his wartime leadership in the Philippines. And so that time that he spends in the Philippines, uh, ostensibly preparing the Philippine army, 
and he is given essentially unlimited latitude to prepare the defense of the islands, sets up his first great defeat and the United States' second great defeat after Pearl Harbor, you know, just a couple hours after Pearl Harbor. And you, know, you paint a extremely unflattering picture of his command there. During this period of 1935 to the very end of 1941, MacArthur is the field commander of the Philippine Army and of American troops uh, preparing towards the back half to defend the Philippines against what everybody knows is going to be a Japanese attack in the case of war. And in the 1940s, the early 1940s, 1939, the war drums are, are pounding and the likelihood of war with Japan is just increasing and increasing. And a huge degree of laxity is shown by MacArthur and that pervades down the chain of command with little rigorous training and at the same time, a extremely what proved to be incorrect belief by MacArthur that he was going to be able to hold off the Japanese. And so more and more equipment that the United States could not spare was flooding into the Philippines to defend it. At the same time, it was, you know, quite frankly, being criminally mismanaged. The defensive plans and the physical placement of these very, very limited war supplies in the years leading up to World War II. Well, I think we, we can step back for a moment. What, what did, would MacArthur say? How did he describe it in his autobiography, Reminiscences? and how his supporters described what happened. They would say that he was massively outnumbered. He was cut off because the U.S. Navy suffered such great losses at Pearl Harbor. He fought valiantly what he had. He held off the Japanese for a long period of time, but his, the destruction of the force under his command was inevitable. Some of those points are true. Some of them are not borne out by the facts. The facts are that from much earlier in this century, the U.S. military had established what they referred to as War Plan Orange, orange being the code word for Japan. What was the plan for a war breaking out between the U.S. and Japan? The conclusion was, as the Japanese Navy and Army grew from strength to strength, that the Philippines was just too far away from the U.S. West Coast and even the territory of Hawaii, and much too close to Japan and its bases in Formosa, now the island of Taiwan to be defended. And the garrison was going to fall. And thus, if the U.S. was going to keep a garrison there, they shouldn't keep too many men there because they were going to be cut off and forced to surrender. The plan for War Plan Orange was to have the garrison retreat to the peninsula of Bataan and the small fortified island of Corregidor off its coast. And Bataan and Corregidor dominate the entrance to Manila Bay, which is the best naval base in the Philippines, and to keep the Japanese from being able to take control of Manila Bay for as long as possible, hopefully six months until the Japanese force the garrison to surrender. Now, MacArthur had always hated that plan. He hated that plan when he was chief of staff, and he said it was defeatist. He didn't like being on the defensive, and he railed against it when he got to the Philippines. And he said, the Philippines, it's not just that i believe they can be defended, I know they can be defended. He began raising this 100,000-plus-man Philippine army, and he started cabling his successor, Chief of Staff General George Marshall, and telling him, hey, I want a lot of reinforcements, and I want to defend the Philippines, all of the Philippines, not just Bataan, and I want to defend it on the beaches against the Japanese when they land. 
so he decides to defend the beaches, which turns out to be the tragically wrong decision, but also the obviously tragically wrong decision, given that one, the Philippines have a million beaches, two, that it disperses the U.S. forces significantly, and then three, there's just a widespread incompetence throughout the supposed defense, and there was no backup plan made whatsoever in terms of supplies, and most of these supplies end up, instead of doing a fighting retreat down to Bataan, sort of a war plan orange-esque scenario, which eventually the U.S. Army does, spoiler alert, it becomes a an absolutely mismanaged mess. And I'd leave that largely at MacArthur's feet. Is that inaccurate? I actually do believe that while that is the consensus view of many of what happened, I think it, there's a more nuanced answer, which is that the U.S. could have and should have won a fabulous victory in the Philippines early in the war. The reason being that, yes, the Philippines has a million beaches, you, you said, but if you take a look at Luzon, most obvious place to land an amphibious force is along the big crescent on the northern part of the Luzon Plain on the, along the Lin Gayen Gulf. It's where the U.S. military had expected the Japanese to land for decades. It's where MacArthur thought they would land, and it is where they landed. And in fact, it's, that is exactly where the U.S. landed in 1945 when MacArthur returned. It, it's pretty clear that's the place to land. You can then move quickly across the Luzon Plain to be able to take Manila, and much of the rest of Luzon is mountainous and would be a much more difficult place to land and, and move to take Manila. Not only did MacArthur know where the Japanese were likely to land, he received significant reinforcements from the U.S. The U.S. Army garrison was more than doubled in size to more than 20,000 men, including the 4th Regiment of the Marines, which was a veteran unit which uh, shipped in from from China when it was withdrawn as the Japanese were overrunning Shanghai and, and parts of coastal China. He received two battalions of armor, the only two active in the U.S. National Guard at the time. They were equipped with 108 modern M3 tanks, the best tanks the U.S. had at, in its military at the time. They were relatively undergunned by European standards against heavier panzers, but versus Japanese tanks, they were more than a match for them. And they were quite successful when used in New Guinea by the Australians and by uh, the British and the Americans in North Africa later in the war. He also received 75 millimeter self-propelled guns. And that's before we get to the Air Force, where he received more than 100 T-40s, the most advanced fighter plane in the US at the time. He also received more than 35 B-17 heavy bombers, which was the most advanced bomber in the U.S. arsenal at the time. So he had a colonel of 20,000 trained U.S. soldiers. He had 100,000 poorly trained Philippine soldiers. He was telling the War Department and telling George Marshall back in, in D.C. that his men were well-trained, they had great morale, they were ready to fight, and he said he was ready to oppose a landing of 100,000 Japanese on the beaches of the Lingayen Gulf, and he could drive them back into the sea. So that, I think, is the, what really happened. I don't think we necessarily can blame him for the U.S. Army not being at a high state of readiness, but being at the very most exposed part 
of U.S. forces in Asia, he should have known that chances were very high he would be attacked if war broke out. He should have been training his men and had them on a war alert, and he did not. His commander of the Air Force, General Luce Burton, arrived in late November, hand-delivered new orders to MacArthur, and was shocked when he uh, went out to visit his Air Force, the U.S. Army Air Force under his command in the the Philippines and found that they were still on a peacetime training regimen. And again, that's only a few days before Pearl Harbor. This is after the U.S. had put a boycott on sales of oil and steel to the Japanese, and at the same time that almost daily war warnings were coming from the War Department, now we call it the Defense Department, were being sent out to MacArthur, being told that negotiations with the Japanese had broken down and war could commence at any time. So I think we can, what we, we can blame MacArthur for sucking in a huge amount of additional resources in the U.S.'s very limited arsenal at the time to defend a place which, at the end of the day, through his incompetence, he was not able to defend. And by telling the army and the administration in Washington what they wanted to hear, which was he could hold the colony, when in fact he, he really didn't have the ability to do so. So. He gets warning of the invasion by way of the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor, and the Japanese attack is delayed due to weather. And so he you know, essentially does not sound the alarm bells, does not immediately put everybody in the Philippines on invasion is imminent footing. The Japanese, as we mentioned, do land at essentially the expected beach. The defend the beach strategy fails. Can you sketch out briefly what happens during the rest of the Philippine campaign, uh, that turns into a, essentially a disaster. Yes, though I, I believe we, we need to extend the timeline a little bit because there's there about three weeks in between Pearl Harbor and the beginning of the siege of Bataan. And it's a crucial period. MacArthur is awakened early in the morning of December 8th, December 8th on the other side of the international dateline from Pearl Harbor. And he's told Pearl Harbor is under attack the United States is now in a state of war. You are to use all your forces to attack the Japanese. That's early in the morning. His air general, again, General Verriton, calls multiple times, tries to go and see him, and is held back by MacArthur's chief of staff. And Verriton says, hey, I want to go and attack the Japanese in Formosa using my B-17 heavy bombers. And MacArthur says, no, we're not going to do that. And it's only at around noon he even allows two of the B-17s to be authorized to fly over Formosa to engage in reconnaissance. Now, as you mentioned, there, there was some fog over Formosa that delayed the Japanese air attack, which was supposed to coincide with the attack on Pearl Harbor. And shockingly, around noon, when the Japanese Air Force did arrive over the air bases in the Philippines, they caught almost all of the U.S. Army Air Force on the ground and destroyed more than half of the P-40 fighter planes and more than half of the B-17 bombers, as along with many other aircraft in the U.S. Army Air Force there. And the Japanese had gained air superiority the first day of the war, despite several hours of warning between the attack on Pearl Harbor taking place and when the Japanese attacked Clark Airfield and, and the other airfields around Manila. Now, then... We don't have the Japanese invasion of the Philippines for a couple of weeks. And during that time, MacArthur's still planning 
to defend all of the Philippines, even though he's lost air superiority or lost half of his air force and the Japanese are coming back daily and taking out more and more of his air force, whittling it down. And even though he knows the Navy has taken grievous losses in Pearl Harbor and is not going to be able to sortie out to, to aid him, he still refuses to put supplies in Bataan. He refuses to have it sprayed from malarial mosquitoes. His quartermaster asks if he can start stockpiling munitions and food in Bataan. And MacArthur says, oh no, we're not doing that. He doesn't requisition lots of buses and trucks from Philippine civilians to be able to move his forces around more quickly. But he's still relatively well prepared and well positioned when the Japanese do land around Christmas along the Lingayen Gulf. Uh, The 14th Army lands, they have about 40,000 men they get ashore. But, and this is a very important but, there were high seas that day, and the Japanese were not able to land most of their armor and most of their artillery the first day. This should have been the golden chance for MacArthur to achieve exactly the victory he'd said he he wanted to achieve. He had more than a two-to-one superiority in men. He had a significant superiority in armor. He had more than 100 tanks. The Japanese had almost none ashore. He had a significant advantage in artillery, both self-propelled and in place. And he had a, a good road to move his forces toward the beachhead, attack the beachhead, get armor into the beachhead, and potentially defeat the Japanese landing force. Instead, it's not exactly clear why, he wires back to Washington that he's got 40,000 men and the Japanese have landed 100,000 men, even though, of course, it's, it's the other way around. Is this intentional to you know, set the stage for some ass covering in the future, do you think? Or is this a genuine misunderstanding? Look, I've, I've read the cables. I've read the daily communiques. I've read through the official army history. The official army history mentions that, yes, the numbers were the opposite way around. But they don't. There's no exact explanation as to why MacArthur gets that information incorrect. It, it's possible he was concerned. Maybe he, he got poor intelligence about how many Japanese landed. He thought they had landed 100,000. But why he thought he had so few men, or reported he had so few men, doesn't make much sense, especially as we can get to later. And the story is that more than 90,000 men surrender in Bataan and Corregidor. So where did all those guys come from if they weren't there in, in Luzon to help fight against the Japanese invasion in the first place? But for whatever reason, General John Wainwright, the Field commander along the Lingayen Gulf asks MacArthur to release the, the two armored battalions to storm into the beachheads and help support the Philippine army. And MacArthur denies more than two or three of those tanks being sent forward. The Philippine mm-hmm. army troops, when confronted with the Japanese soldiers, most of them either retreat, they throw their weapons away and run into the hills, or they simply go home. The Japanese are able to, as the seas calm down, land their tanks, land their artillery, and begin marching towards Manila. And so this is where MacArthur's denial of essentially making any preparations whatsoever for an orderly fallback in defense of the Bataan Peninsula, which is one side of Luzon, which is the main island of the Philippines, sort of one of the peninsulas uh, on one side of Manila, really bites them, instead of having an extremely well-fortified and defended position, they end up, well, starving. 
no, no, they're actually starving. And this is an interesting point in terms of uh, military history. At West Point, they teach the, the retreat because it took place so efficiently. Now, of course, this retreat had been planned for a couple of decades, how the Philippine military would retreat along various fallback staging lines into Bataan. And in fact, they did retreat efficiently and effectively, and most of the Philippine army and the U.S. garrison were able to get back to Bataan. The problem was, while that may have been successful in bringing the men back, they didn't bring the supplies, the food, the ammo, the fuel, and the medicine back. And so I would posit that it was a complete failure. However, of course, the plan was that they would retreat back to Bataan and there'd be huge stores there of everything they needed to to hold out for a lengthy siege. But instead, as you mentioned, they begin starving, they get to Bataan, and they're almost immediately put on half rations, and soon they're put on quarter rations. That's about a thousand calories a a day, which is significantly insufficient for a younger man, especially one engaged in combat and digging trenches, etc. And huge supplies of food, of munitions, of ammo are either seized by the Japanese along the Luzon Plain where stockpiles had been left by the Americans. And some of them were blown up, but many of them fell into Japanese hands. And huge stores that were sitting on the Manila docks fallen into the hands of the Japanese, even though there had been significant merchant shipping to just ship those stores relatively quickly, the short distance from the port of Manila across to the Bataan Peninsula. But in the end, a very large army, U.S.-led, was stuck in the Bataan Peninsula, had effectively turned over all their war-making supplies to the Japanese, and began to starve and suffer from tropical diseases. And they began to die relatively quickly as the siege progressed. And so MacArthur is in the fortress of Corregidor, which is the big Gibraltar-esque island at the mouth of Manila Bay. And from there, he is, you know, ostensibly commanding the defense of the Philippines, which is, uh, put it lightly, going poorly at this point. And how aware is he of the facts on the ground? Because at one point in your book, you mentioned that he had only been to the Bataan Peninsula once, despite it being extremely easy to go and visit, just sort of a nighttime PT boat away. And that may have contributed to his lack of situational awareness. And to me, that seems somewhere on the spectrum of indifference to cowardness to you know criminal oversight in wartime but that doesn't seem to comport with his at least self-image of himself and his prior actions during world war one in which he was a man that was full of energy and vigor and you know determination to be on the front lines and you know what caused the difference was it just he got old in the meantime i think that may be part of it so as you mentioned he only goes to visit great mass of his troops are in Bataan, only a small, much smaller portion are in Corregidor, which is a relatively small island, and it is similar, similar to Gibraltar, and it was referred to as the Rock, and it was fortified, and it was where there were a great deal of uh, communications equipment, but he could have made his headquarters in Bataan, but he did not. Many of his supporters say he only went to Bataan once because he just couldn't stand to look his men in the eye because he knew that they were all doomed and we're going to either die fighting or have to surrender. Uh, but again, I, I don't understand why that's an acceptable excuse. 
In Reminiscences, MacArthur's autobiography, he outright lies and says he goes to visit Bataan well into the siege when the men are emaciated and starving, and they are heartened when they see him and they spit on the ground and swear at the U.S. Navy for not coming and sing jolly songs with him. This just didn't happen. He didn't go. He went to Bataan once near the early part of the siege. As you mentioned, he had several fast PT boats and the Japanese didn't have their Navy inside Manila Bay. And it took at the time about 10 minutes at night to get the PT boat from Corregidor to Bataan. So he could have visited quite often. He could have based himself there. But instead, he stayed in the fortified Malinta Tunnel in Corregidor, planning that he deserved to be reinforced, that the U.S. and British Navy should pull all of their Navy out of the Mediterranean and the Battle of the Atlantic and send them immediately to save him and his garrison. And it seems a bit like Achilles sulking in his tent. And <laughs> there's a photo of uh, MacArthur in the Melinda Tunnel with his chief of staff, General Richard Sutherland, and uh, he, he's outright sulking. It's about the only really negative-looking picture of MacArthur that you'll ever find anywhere, where he, he's not projecting himself in the way he wanted to be seen by the American public. Hmm. So, long story short, the ton falls, and MacArthur is evacuated from Corregidor before it falls, and given the Medal of Honor for public relations reasons, effectively, matching his father and you know elevating himself in the eyes of the American public as yet more of a hero. But at this point, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that he is, I believe the technical term is full of shit, and he's shunted off to the least consequential theater which is the Southwest Pacific, right? So Australia. Not that it's not important, but it is going to be destined to be by far the least important theater. It's not Europe. It's not the Central Pacific where the main thrust of the US counterattack against Japan is going to happen. And so one question I have is the president, so starting with FDR, had a pretty dim view of MacArthur for a long time and thus is the reason he was in the Philippines at the first place. But how did that spread? You know, his fellow generals and admirals, his staff, and eventually his soldiers, and you know, now through your book, working on the American public in general, when did various groups start to realize that this guy was not the military savior that he was made out to be in the popular press? Lots lot to unpack there. If, if I can take that last part first, FDR, I believe, had a pretty good opinion of MacArthur as a general, at least before World War II. However, he was very concerned about his authoritarian leanings. He referred to him, MacArthur, as the most dangerous man in America. And he was concerned that he would uh, be a dangerous person to potentially be president in the White House. And that's one reason why he wanted him as far away from the American voting public as possible and sent him off to the Philippines, where I believe he thought he couldn't do much harm. and I think we can argue that he did later on. In terms of people having a dim view of him, well, Dwight D. Eisenhower was MacArthur's aide in D.C. when he was chief of staff, and then took him with, went with him to the Philippines and was his aide in the Philippines for a bunch of years before World War II started. And he had a very mixed view of MacArthur. He said, 
Man, but he was smart. He also said, I can't believe such an idiot got to be made a general. Mm -hmm. And in his diary that he kept during the early days of World War II, he did complain about MacArthur is, is still crying about like being a baby and is, still likes being surrounded by bootlickers in his estimation of the people that MacArthur chose to be his staff, who often were not necessarily competent, but showed great deference and loyalty to MacArthur. Uh, Truman, in his diary, wrote that he thought General Wainwright should have been in charge and should have been the one evacuated from Bataan to go run things in Australia, and that he was a real fighter versus uh, Arthur, who was a complainer. So there definitely were those before and during World War II who questioned MacArthur's character and, as the war progressed, his fighting ability. Now, to go back to your first point and your first question about how and why did he end up being in charge in Australia, one is that MacArthur had refused to send his wife and young son home, even though all military dependents were supposed to have been sent home. Rules were for other people, not for MacArthur. And FDR realized he did not want a senior U.S. general and his wife and son to either be killed by the Japanese in the final assault on Corregidor, or even worse, to be captured and paraded around for propaganda reasons. So he ordered MacArthur to leave and try to escape to Australia. MacArthur does do this. He gets away by PT boat and then gets to Mindanao, a southern Philippine island, to a part that was still under U.S. control, where a B-17 picked him up and flew him the rest of the way to Australia. Wainwright takes over a garrison in Bataan and Corregidor, and he wires Cable's General Marshall back in D.C. and, and says, okay, I've got uh, 90,000 men in Bataan and about another 10,000 in Corregidor. And Marshall is just flabbergasted and sends back, I had no idea there were so many men left in the garrison. How did that happen? But unfortunately, these men are increasingly emaciated, suffering from malaria and other tropical diseases, and they're not able to put up a, a significant fight as the Japanese slowly compress their lines and, and bombard them. And five months after the start of the war, they are forced to surrender. One thing, of course, MacArthur hates this. He rails against it. He thinks they should have fought to the last man. And there is discussion that Wainwright should be given the Congressional Medal of Honor. And MacArthur blocks it, saying that he should not get it. And Wainwright never gets the Congressional Medal of Honor. And MacArthur gets it, partly due to politics. Again, politics always helped MacArthur, always went in his favor, in that, as you may recall, the beginning of World War II in the Pacific, the British are doing just as badly or worse than the U.S. is doing in Pearl Harbor and the Philippines and Wake Island and Guam, and Singapore falls, and the Dutch East Indies are being invaded, and the Australians have almost their entire military in the Middle East and the Mediterranean fighting the Italians and the Germans, and they want them home right away. And John Curtin, the PM, puts out a, a controversial editorial saying that, hey, we, we love the UK, and we know we love Britain, but we know that Australia can fall and Britain could keep fighting. And basically saying that he understands that we might not be defended by the British. And it's more important for us Australians to look out for ourselves. And if that means we turn away our primary allegiance from Britain and cling 
closely to the United States, so be it. So this, of course, is something that upsets Churchill, and the Australians are calling for all of their troops to be shipped home from the Middle East as fast as possible to Australia to defend the homeland. So the U.S. agrees to put a U.S. general in charge of the defense of Australia. MacArthur is, of course, a very senior and famous person. And if you give him the Congressional Medal of Honor, it looks like he did a really good job in the Philippines rather than a poor job and help the Australians believe that they're getting the assistance they need quickly. And also, the U.S. starts shipping green soldiers out to Australia to do their training in Australia. And in that way, the British do not have to pull Australians out of the line of battle in the North African desert against Rommel, where, in other words, the Australians are willing to accept leaving some of their veteran forces in Northern Africa in return for leadership from a U.S. general and a shipment of green U.S. forces to Australia where they'll complete their training there. Just to end with, is that the Japanese actually did not plan to invade Australia, though that is somewhat of a consensus view. And the Imperial Japanese Navy was interested in doing it. The Imperial Japanese Army said, no way, we do not have enough forces. We're still fighting in China and in Burma. We're pushing up towards India. We've got to fortify our defensive perimeter. There's not that much worth getting in Australia. And so the decision is more just try to break the communication line between Hawaii and Australia rather than invade Australia in the first place. So fears that Australia is going to be invaded actually are overblown. Gotcha. And so from Australia, MacArthur attempts to dictate war policy and essentially put himself in a what I would describe as a more important position because there's a debate within the U.S. Strategic Command as to the Pacific policy. So one is to go draw a straight line more or less from Hawaii to Japan that sort of goes through the Central Pacific via an island hopping campaign. And then the other one is we have this great base where fresh US GIs are flooding to, as you mentioned, in Australia, and conveniently MacArthur there in Australia in, in charge of this theater. And that's to start in Australia, go up through what is today Indonesia, the Dutch East Indies, Papua New Guinea, and hit the Philippines. And MacArthur made his famous I will return a speech before leaving the Philippines. And then going to Japan, and MacArthur lobbies for his preferred option, which is the southern route. And um, it's a bit of a, a debate, right? Is, am I missing any of the nuance in there? No, I don't think that much. I think the, the most important thing is we, if we step back for a moment and remember that the Victory Program was leaked and published in the Chicago and U.S. paper, Washington, D.C. papers, just a few days before attack on Pearl Harbor. And it was FDR's plan of how a, we were going to fight and win a two-front war against the Axis. And the plan was to remain on the defensive in the Pacific, raise a million-man army in the United States, and ship it to Europe, hopefully putting it in Britain first, and then landing it in France and fighting our way through to Berlin, and then dealing with the Japanese. That was the old Germany first strategy that we've all heard about if we've studied World War II. Now, MacArthur wasn't asked his opinion, but of course, he, he was not the president. He was not the secretary of the war, nor was he the army chief of staff. And he hated the Germany first strategy, and he railed against it and argued for it to be scrapped. 
Now, the Navy wanted to fall back to their 20, 30-year-old plan of War Plan Orange, which was, we're going to fight across the Pacific from Hawaii, and we're going to start to bombard and blockade Japan and force them to surrender. This is not what MacArthur wanted to do. He wanted to return to the Philippines. And he said that if we don't take the Philippines back, if we bypass it and go and conquer Japan, we'll be abandoning the Philippine people with whom we have a solemn and sacred duty to, to save. And George Marshall writes letters back to MacArthur at some point saying, hey, there's a big difference between bypassing and abandoning. And we have promised we're going to free the Philippines, but the president has promised that he's going to free the French and the Dutch and the Norwegians and the Vietnamese and the Chinese and the people of Guam and the people of Formosa and the people of Korea. And he didn't say what order we're going to free them in. And if the president wants to free Philippines later in the war rather than earlier in the war, that, that's up to him. And of course, MacArthur hates that because he wants to get his honor back. And he feels the way to get his honor back is to reconquer the Philippines. And he increasingly throughout the war puts reconquest of the Philippines on a higher plane than actually defeating Japan itself. Hmm. So the U.S. is aided by Ultra, which is the program by which the U.S. broke the Japanese military codes. And MacArthur does launch with Australian troops his counterattack. And so he starts by attacking Papua New Guinea right off the Australian coast to the north. And that campaign goes fairly poorly. Um, but he does win a pretty darn significant victory at Alandia. So how do you overall assess that first large campaign through Papua New Guinea and the immediate follow-on islands? How do you assess his military performance there? Well, first of all, when we talk about Ultra, this was the fact that the Japanese, for various reasons, had terrible communication security protocols in place during World War II. That, and we cracked their, increasingly cracked both the, first the Navy and then the Army codes. And we increasingly had specific information as to what the Japanese were going to do, when, where, and with whom. And it greatly accelerated our victory. Famously, we knew that the Japanese were going to attack Midway Island. Six months after the beginning of the war, it allowed Nimitz to stage a, an ambush of the, the Japanese fleet there, which led to the sinking of four Japanese carriers. I think that's relatively well known that Nimitz won a great victory there, but he was very much aided by Ultra. Many know that Admiral Yamamoto, the uh, mastermind of the attack on Pearl Harbor, was ambushed in the Solomon Islands due to Ultra, that we knew exactly where and when he was going to be arriving by plane over uh, Bougainvillea Island, and we sent some long-range fighter planes to be waiting for him there, and they shot his plane out of the sky, and his plane crashed in the jungle, killing him instantly. But Ultra's uh, assisting MacArthur in the fighting in New Guinea is not as well known, but it's well documented, and certainly after several very bloody battles, the U.S. and Australian forces began to increasingly gain the upper hand against the Japanese, first in Papua New Guinea and then in the, the, the Dutch side of New Guinea. Much of this was because the Japanese 
dedicated most of their resources to the, the campaign for the island of Guadalcanal, in which the Navy, the Marines, and the Army fought a long attritional battle that eventually the U.S., of course, won, taking grievous losses, but so did the Japanese and the U.S. at that time, with its much larger population and eight time larger economy, could much better make up the losses. In any event, MacArthur does win some great victories as he moves quickly across the northern coast of New Guinea Island. And he is then gets close enough to the Philippines to be able to argue that the Philippines should be the next spot that the U.S. tries to reconquer from the Japanese, while Admiral Ernest King, the chief of naval operations in Washington, wants to instead attack and take Formosa for various strategic reasons to cut off the Japanese supply lines and also be able to aid the Chinese nationalists who were, as we don't usually think about, tying down more than a million men of the Imperial Japanese Army fighting in China. And if the Chinese nationalists had collapsed, we would have had to confront a much larger Japanese defending force in their Pacific Island conquests, which we did not want to do. In any event, the real question comes down to, was it necessary to have a two-pronged advance, one through Hawaii, through the island chains to the Marianas, and another one along the north coast of New Guinea? That's one that many argue about. It's definitely not the one the U.S. military had really planned for before the war, but it's one that at the end of the day was reasonably effective, though I believe that the second advance along the coast of New Guinea extended the war and we could have won World War II in the Pacific sooner had we not had MacArthur pushing for an advance across New Guinea and into the Philippines. So my conclusion, having read a lot of World War II naval history, is that the war probably would not have ended sooner because it ended essentially when we dropped atomic bombs and the Soviets got involved, but we certainly would have avoided a lot of casualties and sort of just enforced a blockade on Japan sooner and started strangling their war production. But nonetheless, history turned out how it did, and MacArthur successfully lobbied for a two-pronged strategy, and we end up invading the Philippines with a half million Japanese defenders. And I personally think it would have been better to have skipped the islands, but you know we do what we do. And we reinvade the Philippines with a utterly massive force, and MacArthur falls into the habit that he consistently had displayed until that point, which was declaring that the fight was over and that it was simply a mopping up operation, when in fact there was still extremely significant fighting still to be done, much to the chagrin of uh, just about everybody who was involved in this and continuing to die as part of this mere mopping up operation. Well, I'd like to comment just for a moment in terms of my theory as to why the war would have ended sooner had we pushed with just a single salt across the Central Pacific. And that is because had the U.S. forces been able to generally focus after Guadalcanal, pushing towards taking the Marianas, I think that could have happened sooner, especially with some feints from further in the south in MacArthur's area of operations, if he had been willing to uh, play the role of, of simply drawing off Japanese troops rather than trying to return to the Philippines. So if we had had 
more men, more ships, more planes focused on taking the Mariana sooner. We would have taken them sooner than the middle of, of 1944. Let's say we had taken them six months sooner. That means the B-29s, which were already in production and were already trying to fly over the hump and out of China to hit Japan, they would have been able to start flying out of the Marianas, out of Guam and Tinian and Saipan sooner. They would have been able to start bombing Japanese cities sooner. And Operation Starvation, which was the use of about 5% of the B-29s to drop waterborne mines in the harbors and trade routes around Japan, would have cut Japan off from outside trade and food supplies much sooner or six months sooner than otherwise took place. We know that the emperor and his advisors were very afraid of a communist uprising in Japan and the communist party in Japan that was a real force. And if the people didn't have enough food for too long and they were starving to death, they might rise up against the army and the navy. The army and the navy wanted to have one last battle in Kyushu, the main southern island of the Japanese, and was hoping to inflict such high casualties on the U.S. that the U.S. would be willing to engage in something other than unconditional surrender. But if they'd had to suffer through that bombing campaign and that interdiction campaign of all of their supplies coming from the sea, for an additional six months, we certainly could have had a surrender that took place without the need to drop the atomic weapons and without the need to allow or wait for the Soviets to invade, which of course has huge implications through history because Korea would not have been divided. All of the Japanese arms wouldn't have been confiscated by the Soviets and turned over to the Chinese communists, which certainly had an impact on the Chinese Civil War. So you have very significant implications had we not engaged in this two-pronged attack that led to a later invasion of the Marianas Islands and a later commencement of the B-29s flying from there. So I'm sorry to go off on a long tangent there. I'll go back to your other point that, yes, MacArthur is able to get his way. The U.S. military first lands under his command in the island of Leyte, then Mindoro, and then Luzon itself, returning to the Guyan Gulf, as mentioned before. And Admiral King was quite concerned of what was going to happen if the U.S. landed in Luzon. He, like anybody else in the U.S. military upper ranks, had been studying what the Japanese had been up to. They knew about the rape of Dan King. They knew about what happened at the slaughter that took place in Shanghai. They knew about how Australian, U.S., British prisoners were often treated terribly, baton, death march decapitation by sword stroke, etc. And he said to one of his planners, or one of Nimitz's uh, planning generals, when he saw the plans taking place for an attack on Luzon and an invasion of Luzon, he said, you trying to turn Manila into another London? Manila at the time was known as the Pearl of the Orient. We had built a beautiful, giant city in Manila with many giant buildings that were meant to look and appear to be similar to our great buildings in Washington, D.C., and King was concerned that they were going to be destroyed along with the lives of many of the civilians in Manila. 
And that is exactly what happened, is that by the middle of 1945, we had retaken Luzon, we had taken Manila, but more than 100,000 civilians in Manila died, and much of Manila was destroyed, much of it through Japanese explosives and burning of the city, but perhaps even more of it due to U.S. artillery, which flattened entire sections of, of the city. Yeah, so the, the Philippines really came out of the liberation of the Philippines possibly somewhat worse than if they had not been liberated. And obviously, these are both uh, counterfactuals, but I'm you know, sure if Operation Starvation and the isolation of the Japanese and the threat of the communist regime would have been enough. And my general impression is that the Empatai, uh, the Japanese secret police, had a firm enough grasp on the Japanese populace where that would not have been the overriding concern. And certainly more Japanese would have died, but ultimately the wholesale surrender of Japan would probably not have happened on a significantly different timeline, regardless of the, uh, the one or the two pronged approach, but uh, yeah, sort of a- certainly, certainly possible. And I mean, that is of course the, the conundrum of counterfactual history is you, you can never know for sure. We can both, you and I can both lay out our, our arguments and why, but we can never know for sure, but definitely concede the point that um, it's certainly possible the Japanese would not have accepted the unconditional surrender with one caveat that the emperor would remain in place without the atomic bombs and without the Soviets entering war. So Japan eventually, after two atomic bombs, does surrender aboard the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945. And the star of the surrender ceremony was none other than General Douglas MacArthur. He gives a brief speech and accepts the Japanese surrender and then goes on for the next five years or so to become the most powerful man in Japan. What is your assessment of his time as essentially shogun of Japan? He is a commensurate politician. Does he do well as he needed? Um, you know, Is this the role that he was suited for? Um, he, he clearly does an effective job. It is one of the things that he points to and his supporters to this day point to as one of his great accomplishments, which was that uh, Japan had been a totalitarian, warlike, fascistic state, and it emerged from the occupation a peaceful, law-abiding, allied democracy to, to the U.S. And I guess, uh, you know, I don't too much to say about what he did versus what any other uh, general put in that position would have done, except to say that the U.S. also was in charge of Germany and Austria and occupied them after World War II. And they didn't have the genius of Douglas MacArthur running the places, yet they also emerged as peace-loving, prosperous, democratic allies to the United States as well. Without and, the the somewhat dubious genius of General MacArthur, and you know who who were the U.S. generals in charge of the occupation forces there? You know, not too many people can name them, and because General Truscott and General Clark, uh, you know, they didn't need the sort of limelight and fawning attention in the press that MacArthur needed. But I'll leave that. I more than happy to concede to him, to MacArthur that he was a great occupation force leader for Japan. However, that is not why he is famous to this day. He's famous for being a wartime general 
not for being an occupation peacetime leader. And uh, so I, I would say that had he only been a great peacetime leader to the Japanese, I'm not sure if they would think about him quite the same way today. And so MacArthur has one more war in the twilight of his career, and that is the Korean War. We go to war in Korea after the North Koreans do invade with you know, an army that had gotten soft under MacArthur, who rarely left downtown Tokyo, and sort of similar to his non-preparation of the defenses in the Philippines, sort of fails to prepare the forces under his command in Japan and South Korea, and U.S. forces get pushed back into the Pusan perimeter, so basically the southern tip of South Korea, and war is declared, enormous resources start to get mobilized, the U.S. again goes on a war footing, the Navy very quickly blockades and starts bombing the North Korean coast, and the North Koreans have essentially extended their logistics to the breaking point, especially since they don't have sea control. And here is MacArthur's most famous, most dramatic victory. And in your book, you argue that it was dumb. Well, first of all, I want to comment just on the Eighth Army and, and being uh, poorly trained. Most of the U.S. forces around the world had gotten a bit soft. Between 1945 and 1950, the U.S. had demobilized to a great extent. However, in 1948, it was pretty clear that the Japanese were not going to engage in a revolt against the occupation. The Japanese local civilian police forces were handling whatever problems there were just fine. And the new, not, no longer War Department, the Defense Department orders MacArthur to start training the Eighth Army to be ready to fight. And clearly, if you're MacArthur and he hated communism, there were some pretty good hotspots around where he might end up fighting the communists. It could have been in Indochina, where the French were being driven out. It could have been in Formosa, now Taiwan, where the nationalists had retreated. Or it could be in Korea, where the North was making increasingly aggressive noises and occasionally bombing and having artillery bombardment of South Korean cities near the border. So, yes, I would blame MacArthur for not being well-prepared or having well-prepared his men, and they performed poorly in the initial phases of the Korean conflict. War was never declared. It was technically a police action, but there was a UN resolution to resist the North's aggression, and MacArthur was placed in charge of that UN force, and not just U.S. and South Korean forces, but also British, Turkish and other forces served in South Korea fighting against the North. Now, in terms of Incheon, as you said, was that a big mistake on MacArthur's fault? Well, it was successful, so it's hard to say it was a mistake. I reckon it to the equivalent, if you're playing blackjack and you're showing 19, you probably shouldn't ask for a card. You might get two, and you might get 21, and you might win, but odds are quite low. Now, the Navy and the Marines, who had a huge amount of experience in amphibious landings, not just across the Pacific, but also Normandy and D-Day, and Anzio, and Salerno, and the Husky landings in Sicily, they looked at Incheon, the point that MacArthur wanted to attack, and they were aghast. They said, we made a list of all the don'ts in an amphibious landing, and Inchon had them all. 
and everything ended up going right, but it's quite easy to imagine that the tides were just a little bit off, and we could have had a situation like Tarawa, where the Navy tried to get the Marines ashore, and they got the tides off just a little bit, and all the landing ships ran aground on the coral, and the Marines had to wade in through chest-high water through hundreds of yards of water getting shot up and killed. Something similar could have happened in Inchon quite easily. It didn't. The landing was a great success. The North Korean army fled southwards, and uh, MacArthur was then seen as effectively infallible at that point, and whatever he wanted in terms of global policy for in relation to North Korea was going to be very difficult to oppose in Washington. And because of this level of invulnerability, he advances far beyond what his orders allow and set the United States and the rest of the UN forces under his command up for a brutal counterattack by the Chinese, which drive the UN forces back from near the Chinese border to essentially the midpoint um, of the Korean Peninsula. And then it's another three years of slog to essentially arrive at the same place on the 38th parallel that the United States and the, and the communist bloc started with. That's certainly where we ended up. Uh, MacArthur and his supporters would say that he was authorized to invade North Korea, and his orders were to destroy the enemy, destroy the, the North Korean army. However, as he began to push north of the 38th parallel, the Chinese began making increasingly belligerent noises about entering or intervening in the conflict, particularly if U.S. forces got anywhere close to their border on the Yalu River. And the Chinese said, we will not allow imperialists on our border. And I think we need to remember that the Chinese had just finished 20 years of fighting with the Japanese, where the Japanese had first invaded through northern Korea and then from Formosa against the coast, with the U.S. increasingly looking like it was going to be on the northern border of Korea, as well as increasingly allying itself with the nationalist Chinese in Formosa along the Chinese coast. So the Chinese, I think we can understand why they were relatively paranoid at this point after what had happened to their country, and that it looked like history was playing itself out in a similar manner. Now, the Joint Chiefs of Staff gave MacArthur orders in no uncertain terms and ordered him to reply in acknowledgement that he would not use U.S. troops anywhere near the Chinese border. And he agreed to that for a while. And Truman and his staff were increasingly concerned that the Chinese meant what they said and they were going to enter the war. Truman asked MacArthur to come to Washington. MacArthur said, I'm too busy. He said, how about why don't we meet in San Francisco? He said, no, that's too far for me. I'm too busy. So Truman was willing to fly all the way to Wake Island in the middle of the Pacific with Joint Chiefs of Staff General Omar Bradley to meet with MacArthur. And MacArthur was asked, will the Chinese intervene? And MacArthur said, nope, they missed their chance. And since they missed their chance before Inchon, now they won't. And so we don't have to worry about them coming into the war. And if they did, there wouldn't be many of them. And if they did come in, and of course there wouldn't be many of them, I would make the greatest slaughter of them because I control the air and they have no air force. 
Uh, little did he know at that yeah. exact time when he was saying that, <laughs> the Chinese were starting to slip their first forces over the Yalu River into the mountains of northern Korea. And MacArthur goes back to, uh, to Korea. He actually refused to stay for lunch. When Truman asked him to stay for lunch, even if he'd flown all the way to Wake, Omar Bradley thought it was unbelievably rude that he left. And of course, MacArthur was famous for shaking hands with Truman when Truman got off the plane rather than saluting. But concerning for how generals act in a democratic society, but not necessarily a knock on his ability as a wartime commander. But I do think that what actually took place after that on the battlefield, we can lay mostly at MacArthur's feet in terms of one of the greatest defeats of U.S. arms in history. Yeah. Uh, so what, what ultimately precipitates his removal? And then can you give the brief rundown of his attempt to stay in the public consciousness and his ultimate um, failure to do so and his, his fade away? Uh, so MacArthur gets back from Wake Island to Tokyo, where he's running the war in Korea. He starts ordering U.S. troops right up into the northern areas of Korea. The Joint Chiefs of Staff immediately cable him and say, hey, what's going on? We not to use U.S. troops anywhere near the Chinese border. And Arthur says, oh, no, no, I got permission to do that on Wake Island, even though they're transcripts, and it doesn't seem that was ever discussed. But uh, he gets the Chongchong River north of Pyongyang, and he orders the 8th Army to push northwards to the Yalu River. This is in late October. They're immediately attacked, and these are disparate columns of UN forces moving northwards and separated mountainous valleys with large mountains in between, so they're not able to support each other. And they're attacked by the Chinese that have infiltrated, and the UN forces are thrown back to the Chongchong River. And there's a great deal of concern, of course, in D.C. that that the Chinese are entering the war, but the Chinese forces don't continue attacking. They fade back into the mountains. And MacArthur says, oh, okay, that, that, that wasn't the Chinese, that was North Koreans. And if it was the Chinese, there weren't many of them. And they were just volunteers, even though they had taken a couple of hundred prisoners who were Chinese who identified themselves from being from a large number of Chinese divisions. And MacArthur's reputation is such that unfortunately, no one stops him when he organizes his forces again and orders another attack north of the Chongchong River towards the Yalu in what comes to be known as the Home by Christmas Offensive. This is in late November. And again, the UN forces proceed up these narrow mountainous valleys. And this time they are ambushed by an even larger Chinese force. Uh, the Chinese are armed like a, a weak force from World War One versus the US, which has armor and jet fighters and B-29s. But yet the U.S. soldiers and the other U.N. forces are thrown back in disarray. More than 100 miles, we have the longest U.S.-led retreat in history. And uh, it's only the bad luck that the 8th Army commanding general, Walton Walker, is killed in a jeep crash and General Matthew Ridgway is sent in to replace him, that the situation is stabilized. Even though MacArthur is saying, either I need massive reinforcements or I need to start nuking the Chinese, Ridgeway realizes that the Chinese are relatively weak foe compared to the armor and the artillery he has. 
and that he can take a page out of the German defensive book from the Eastern Front in World War II, and he's able to stabilize the line and begins an offensive that retakes Seoul from the Chinese and pushes back up to about the 38th parallel. And this is where MacArthur gets himself fired by Truman. First, he, he is told, stop making political comments about trying to expand the war and start nuking the Chinese and start bombing their cities rather than just fighting in Korea because we want to keep this war contained. We don't want a general war with the Chinese across all of Asia. But MacArthur just can't help himself. He writes a letter impugning the president's policy to the um, veteran of foreign wars encampment, which pisses Truman off. And MacArthur is forced to retract that. And he's also caught talking in Tokyo to the diplomats from, believe it or not, from uh, fascist General Francisco Franco and the fascist government of uh, Portugal, so the governments of Portugal and Spain, about he's going to be able to expand the war and start bombing China real soon. The Spanish and the Portuguese Borderline treason, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I we mean, can leave that for another day. But yeah. What we, do know, okay, what we do know is that, that the CIA, which has just been created, is listening on those cables of our allies. Truman knows about it. He can't go public with it because he doesn't want uh, Spain and Portugal to know we're listening in on them. But he's pissed as hell at, uh, at MacArthur. In any event, Bridgeway's series of small offensives are really bleeding the Chinese white, but it seems pretty unlikely that we're going to be able to reconquer all of North Korea, nor do we really feel we need to at this point. So Truman is hoping to put out peace feelers and get an armistice in place about where the battle lines are along the 38th parallel. MacArthur is told this is going to happen, so please don't say anything publicly, don't say anything politically, don't do anything militarily crazy to, to piss off the Chinese because we're hoping to try and stop the fighting. And MacArthur hates the idea. He hates playing for a draw. One of his favorite sayings is there's no substitute for victory. He wants a victory. And so he puts out communique to the Chinese military commander in Korea, which of course is effectively Chairman Mao, saying that um, you know, clearly you're not a great power because we're fighting with at least one hand tied behind our back and you can't beat us. And it's only because we've been shown a great deal of restraint that we haven't been using nukes on you and we haven't been bombing your cities. But we'll be doing that soon if you don't quit it. But you know, I'm willing to meet with you to talk peace terms anytime you feel like it, which of course is a great insult to the Chinese who think of themselves as a great power, if not the great power of the world. And uh, obviously, the, any possibility of a, a quick peace is off. Truman writes in his memoir that he was, in his diary, that he was mad enough at MacArthur to, to throw him into the Sea of Japan. And of course, he's, he is fired. He's recalled. He returns to the States to tumultuous receptions everywhere he goes. Remember, he is a favorite of the Republican Party. I think we have to remember the Republicans lost uh, five presidential elections in a row. They're desperate for a victory and for a hero. MacArthur gives his, his famous speech uh, to the joint session of Congress, where he defends a wider war. His, his policy of a wider war against all of China, not just in Korea. It says that 
you know, old soldiers don't die, they just fade away. He has no interest in fading away. He is hoping to become the Republican nominee for president. We move on to his final battle, which is a battle of words in the Senate, where for several days he expresses his policy of a, a large war against uh, China. But then the defense on Truman's side is called, and one general after another, many of them famous generals from World War II, Marshall, Omar Bradley, etc., get up and say that MacArthur was wrong. Bradley summarized it best or most memorably by saying that a general war with China would be the wrong war in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong enemy. And MacArthur suffers greatly in his reputation among the U.S. public, and he is passed over for the Republican nomination to his former aide, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who of course becomes president. MacArthur is very upset that he's been passed over in that way. Still remember the refrain of one of the most popular barrack ballads of that day, which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. And like the old soldier of that battle, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. While he did not wish to fade away, that is in fact what happens. And his legacy remains one that is one of, uh, of great adoration by many Americans and one of, uh, of disgust by others. And uh, just about every other opinion could be found between those two poles. And I want to conclude with a line in your book that I loved, which was MacArthur's greatest legacy is a military that has repudiated his style and his methods. And I think that that is very true and a lesson that the military has very consciously taken over the past decades of truly asserting the civilian leadership of the military. And we didn't touch on this as much as I would have liked, time permitting, but a lot of your book goes into the, the very fraught military-civilian relationship that MacArthur had and how he largely did not seem to respect civilian authority. And I think that that is one of the great strengths of our military is that it is subservient to the civilian authority and very consciously tries to do that, and as evidenced by General Milley, who just retired and you know is really seems to be making it a part of his post military central career and message to reinforce that norm in a politically charged climate that we're in today, and um, one that I I fully support. Um, and I just wanted to thank you, James, for coming on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great talking about uh, such a, a romantic character with so many tragic <laughs> flaws who served through such a significant period of time and I believe has not only left such a strong imprint on upper ranks of the U.S. military today, but continues to be controversial to the extent that we can still talk about him and the 
issues he dealt with seem just as resonant today as they did 50 and 75 years ago. Absolutely. This is James Elman. His book, MacArthur Reconsidered, is one of the more interesting books that I've read recently. I have probably well over 200 highlights and scribbled notes in the margins. I really highly recommend it. I learned a lot, a lot of really good detail and color on the political relationship, on the campaigns, especially on the uh, Southern Thrust, the Southern campaign of World War II that I you know, was not as familiar with. It's a little more army focused and really a whole new side of MacArthur for anyone who was not aware of sort of that aspect and a book that I, I truly would highly recommend. And And thank you, James. This is the U.S. Naval History Podcast. You can always email me at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You give me a rating on iTunes, write me a review. Truly appreciate that. Helps other people find the podcast. And until next time, fair winds and following seas.